This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of November 7, 2016, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 405 of Defender Radio. It seems like every time I talk about cougars, it's explaining why that joke wasn't funny to a guy behind me at the liquor store, or it's reporting on one of the deaths of Canada's big cats. Cougars are persecuted for the typical reasons. They're large animals that, when they come into conflict with people or the places that people live, can do a lot of damage. Add on to that the instinctual fear we have of large predators, the media's love of sensationalizing stories about wildlife, and it really all starts to make sense. So when I read that a group of scientists were challenging the way we looked at cougar conflict with new research, I have to admit, I got pretty excited. Dr. Chris Daramont, Hakai Rainko's professor at the University of Victoria, science director for Rainko's Conservation, and research scholar for the Hakai Institute, co-authored a study that looked at 30 years of cougar conflict data, along with 30 years of cougar hunting data, and has shown a startling correlation between the two in British Columbia. In simple terms, when cougars are hunted, primarily as trophy animals, Dr. Daramont's study shows that conflict with livestock and people goes up. To discuss this paper, its wide-ranging ramifications, and why the government and hunters are trying their very best to ignore it, Dr. Daramont joined Defender Radio. Your study came out uh, in, uh, which which journal was it? Biomed Central, uh, BMC Ecology. Um, yeah. And uh, it's hunting as a management tool. Cougar-human conflict is positively related to trophy hunting. So this falls into the category of, yeah, we kind of figured, but it's very important that we're seeing this kind of a study. And it's something that I think we're seeing more now than we, we really have in the past at all, uh, is looking at some of these sort of what I think many people in conservation or environmentalism sort of look at and say, yeah, that makes sense. Oh. And we sort of assume that, but now we're seeing the study. So how, how did you develop the hypotheses in this study that you then went ahead and uh, looked at the data right. with? Yeah, it was really Christine Techman um, and Bogdan Christescu who, who started thinking about this earlier than I did. And they came to me with some of their ideas Um which we refined and, 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 and looked at analytically. And there's two ways to think about conflict and hunting and, and potential relationships. One, one direction of the relationship um, that we hear often from hunters, in fact, uh, hunters of carnivores, is if we want to avoid conflict, we've got to reduce those populations. We've got to remove some cougars or wolves or bears or whatever the argument may be and there's less of them around and or they're more scared of us so we should see less conflict in the future and that's kind of a seductively simple pretty compelling idea and that kind of kind of makes sense um, so that's one hypothesis the other one it's a little more complicated and it's the one that actually seems to be true um, has evidence for in this study and, and across studies like it in uh, emerging literature, and that is um, the prediction that when we hunt and remove um, 
carnivores, like these big cats, um, we see increases in uh, carnivore-human conflict. And the way this works, we think, is that because um, larger, older individuals are targeted in these trophy hunts, what this does is give um, the youngsters, the teenager cougars in this case, um, uh, maybe a higher probability of surviving in the landscape and filling in voids left by um, uh, these larger, older, uh, often male um, cats. And it's those teenagers that are more likely to survive and roam around. They're the ones that are, in fact, more likely to be conflict prone. We know teenagers don't make great decisions in, in most species. And, and that's the, the second prediction. The second hypothesis is the one for which we found strong support um, in this study. All right. And it, again, it is, as you said, something that we're seeing sort of, and it's not exactly the same, obviously, because we're looking at different species, but similar trends, I would say, uh, across the species when it looks at predators. Uh, wolves and coyotes are two that I'm personally very interested in. Um, mm -hmm. And we see, again, it's it, it seems to really stem to how we as people are impacting their social structures and their territorial yeah. relationships. That's exactly right. Those, those larger, older individuals have a very important social function. That's, that's really important that you hit on that um, because they regulate essentially the behavior, the movement, their survival, etc., of these juvenile animals in the landscape. And when humans hunt these animals and preferentially kill the larger, older social regulators, we might very well expect and understand why, for lack of a better term, all hell can break loose. Um, that's what happens when, when the teenagers rule the roost. And we've seen this in the context recently in Western North America of um, a relate, relationship, positive relationship between the removal, the killing of wolves and subsequent uh, wolf livestock um, conflict when those juveniles are released from social control essentially by those by those older individuals uh, we see not a decrease in livestock conflict but an increase in livestock conflict so we're seeing uh, a different context but same pattern with with mountain lions yeah and that's something too uh, now I I cannot fully interpret your results. I do not have the scientific training. I can look at bar graphs, though. Uh, I like those. And as a former journalist, if you make it a bar graph, I'm going to read that some bitch. So, um, you know, looking at the one, and again, this this is the one that really pops out, even though it, it's not necessarily the, I would say, of the two hypotheses, it's not the sexy one, but it is the one that probably, as you said, has the most importance, and that is the skull size. Right. of uh, uh, cougars that were killed through hunting uh, right. and those that were killed through conflict. Right. Uh, of course, there are issues of reporting involved in all of this, mm -hmm. um, but the trend of available data is significant enough, I would argue, mm -hmm. that that may overcome it. So what we're seeing is very simply that uh, those that are killed in uh, um, Hunting tend to be larger, and those killed in conflict tend to be smaller. Is that purely the age issue, or is there perhaps more to it than that? 
Um, there could be, you know, slightly larger sizes at age, or which breaks down to a growth rate that, that humans preferentially remove the fastest growing sort of trophy, trophy type animals. But likely, most likely, um, it is an age uh, effect. And that is to say that, that the ones that, you know, are in backyards eating chickens or, or around people making them nervous and the ones those are the ones that get removed killed by by landowners and and conservation officers and and whatnot those tend definitely to be younger animals and we know this through a subset of the data that that we didn't actually have but they tend to be younger animals and and generally uh in mountain lions when people age them using annuli or rings on their teeth in our particular data set, we didn't have uh, teeth data, uh, age data, but we did have skull metrics, so both the length and the width of, of the skull, and and we know that to be a very reliable metric of age. And and yeah, that's right. So the the trophy hunters are taking the the larger and very much likely older animals from populations uh, in both sexes, across all areas, across 30 years. This is a clear pattern, whereas the, the conflict animals that were killed were, were younger. Now something, and I, I don't know if this is way out there or in any way related, I have read that we can actually see evolution taking place before us, not natural selection, but actual evolution, uh, particularly the species like bighorn sheep, um, and I believe there are some fish species that have displayed this as well, that they are evolving smaller horns um, because the ones with the larger horn genes are removed from the the uh, the gene pool uh, through right. hunting. Yep. Now, could this also impact behavior in that way, knowing that some amounts of behavior are in fact genetically passed? Right. Really good question. Yep. Um, just for some background context, you're, you're quite correct that there's this emerging, fascinating literature on what's called two things. Contemporary evolution, that's just evolution that proceeds so rapidly we can see it within a human generation. I mean, we see this in domesticated uh, uh, plants and, and um, animals, to be sure, but we can also see it in the wild. And one context in which it happens in the wild is what we refer to now as harvest selection. And that's right. We tend to target large fishes and large um, mammals and because those morphologies have actually very strong heritable components. Um, there is increasing evidence that we see um, shrinking fishes and shrinking horns and other morphological characteristics of animals and very likely these decreases at least in part are driven by uh, unnatural selection harvest selection removing those largest individuals and their genes from populations um, could we see the same effects in behavior you're right there is some heritable component to behavior but it's much less than it is for morphology or size or shape and whatnot of animals um, we know a little bit of that literature um, from the fish world, and I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, and I think it makes sense that that we are, well, by we I mean humans and, and, and fishers are selecting for or um, 
uh, less bold individual phenotypes or, you know, some, so just like in human beings, there's some risk takers and then there's some uh, more safety conscious people. Same thing in the fish world or pick an animal, there'll, there'll be that sort of variation along that, that axis of behavior. And I can't remember the, the systems in which this is studied or the details of the studies, but we are selecting four uh, safety conscious fish, risk avoidance um, behavior in fishes because it's those bolder ones that tend to take the bait, so to speak. Um, could this be happening in mammalian carnivores for bears? Uh, potentially. I mean, let's think of all the ways in which we kill, by we I mean humans kill, uh, fur-bearing animals. A lot of times it's, it's through trapping. And, and often animals detect that something's a little different when they're lured into traps. And those animals that are um, a little more risk-prone may be slightly more likely to enter those very lethal and, and um, cruel, I would say, traps. And uh, those that are more risk uh, adverse may not. So we may be selecting for a shyer, more risk adverse personality, and selecting against risk taking behavior. And I'm I'm wildly speculating here, but but on first principles, um, we might expect um, this sort of evolution to be proceeding when when human beings are such an important, and by important I mean um, frequent source of mortality for these animals. Yeah, and you know, that's um, when I sit up at night staring out the window thinking about these things uh, at four in the morning, uh, as we all sometimes do. Um, I think the other thing that's that's absolutely fascinating is that very few traits are single traits. So like you selecting for a very specific mm-hmm. trait mm-hmm. is, and I look at dog breeding as an example. Mm-hmm. Um Again, that's one we can see within a human generation. Mm-hmm. And if you want to get a dog with a longer nose, mm-hmm. that may end up also meaning you have a bushy tail. That's right. Uh, and that's the Fox Farm experiments. The, the morphology mm-hmm. changed in relation to the behavior change. Right. So mm-hmm. we don't necessarily know. And I think that's the part where the precautionary principle, like if yeah. we are seeing this change yep. happen in some way, yeah. we should say, hold on. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. Often... Some of the changes that we're inadvertently causing um, themselves may be bad, but they may also bring about via, you know, some linkage or sort of hitchhiking of other traits, some some even nastier consequences. Um, Here's an example, and it's a similar thing, but not exactly the same thing. But in fishes, we tend to kill the largest of fishes for economic and and trophy uh, reasons. And this is true in mammals, but especially especially true and extraordinarily more important in fishes, and that is larger females that we're removing, um, preferentially in in harvests, tend to have many, 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 many more eggs um, than um, a smaller fish, so much so than, say, say in like an Atlantic cod, if a female breeds it, at say six years of age, um, she has X number of eggs she's able to produce. If she makes it um, and avoids nets and traps and whatnot, but 
by the time she's eight, she can produce something like several hundred X eggs. So the relationship's not linear, it's extraordinary exponential. So in this case, if we, were, if we are causing evolution to smaller sizes um, in fishes, we, what comes along with that uh, unanticipated result, uh, at least historically unanticipated, is reduced fecundity and, and it scales up to a population effect so that populations are less resilient uh, being able to bounce back from from such uh, persecution. Yeah, it's, it, it is an absolutely fascinating arm of science, and it makes me wish that I paid attention to grade 10 biology so I could actually <laughs> do that rather than just talk about it. But um, now, I, getting back more into the grounded reality of your study, um, sure. in your conclusion, it's written that um, we showed overall increased human hunting, in fact, can be associated with increased conflict, especially for males. Although our results are only correlative, we caution against the universal use of hunting as a tool for managing conflict with large predators. I could swear I've read that same last sentence in the last half dozen studies I've read. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it, we are adding our, our voices to an increasingly loud choir. Um, that is finding this this pattern that is replicated within species, you know, across different populations and across populations of carnivores. And and you've quite rightly um, identified that that um, well, I, I think we're heading there. That that managers are still and and may, maybe members of the public and certainly hunters are not seemingly getting this. Um, yet, and I think because those default, those simple predictions in the opposite direction, that is that if we kill these carnivores, we're going to see less conflict with them, that still is the default and something that, that feeds into perhaps their worldview, um, their self-interest, etc. Um, so quite frankly, I think these, these studies are much easier uh, to do and to conduct despite years of work and analytical um, challenges and whatnot, that they're much easier to do than actually affecting real change on the ground. So I'm glad we're talking about this. You, you, you mentioned that all you do is talk about these things, but this is precisely why it, it's really important to, to maintain momentum in these sort of conversations um, because ultimately this is how policy can be affected or affected um so my my hope is that that especially when it comes to conflict actually which which managers purport to take very seriously because at risk are is not only human property uh if we consider livestock property as managers do um uh, but also human lives human health and safety um so if there's ever a time and a context to take um, new information seriously as a manager, it should be in cases like this, when um, the consequences of trophy hunting can bear um, health and safety um, uh, implications for, for human beings. Um, so at minimum, we might expect managers to say, you know, this is a now a body of evidence. Um, why don't we try something different instead of doing 
what we've always done and what every jurisdiction, state, and province, I guess with the exception of California, still does with cougars, and that is trophy hunt them. Um, why don't we do something different? Why, and then let's track cougar-human conflict. Let's treat this as, a, as an experiment, as a management experiment. Let's see if we can do something different. Um, that would be my hope. Um, one barrier, one very large barrier would be the trophy hunting constituent, which is small in number, but uh, dis- disproportionately influential on, on, on managers through political um, processes. So that's, that's my hope and dream, Mike, that, that something like that might happen. Well, and that's, uh, you, you, I was going to try and push you into a bit of advocacy conversation, but you have opened that door yourself, so thank you. Um, no pushing needed. <laughs> you know, it's that, that in itself is something I, I find so interesting. Um, and it's, again, it's something in, in, in the news business that we kind of talk about a lot internally is the whole bias and so on and so forth. The reality is we all have bias. We all look at information and form an opinion. And it's when we lie to ourselves and say we don't, I think that we have a bigger problem. But um, Yeah, I, I couldn't agree. I think uh, philosophers figured out that truth that you just spoke uh, 2,000 years ago, that everyone has a form of bias and their own perception of reality. And, uh, and the best way to deal with it is to acknowledge it. Uh, that we have it and and um, work in safeguards against it. And that's, I mean, the scientific process is quite nicely set up to do that and that we um, uh, engage in the peer review system. So people reviewing this article and articles like us, like it, um, may not necessarily uh, care too deeply about uh, cougars or wolves or, or bears, but they care about um, good statistical approaches, uh, reasonable interpretations of the data, um, etc. Um, and, and the other thing that gives me comfort is in knowing that people have biases is that, that we're very clear with ours. I, 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 I will um, stand up and, and say for sure that I, I believe it's unethical to to kill animals for trophy, um, but that that bias need not or does not influence the way I do science or um, or the way that um, these papers are put together or interpreted um, or shared with with peers. Um, and I would argue that that people that have um, some sort of concern with that are conflating advocacy with bad science. These are not the same thing uh, at all. Um, and, and again, philosophers and, and people who study logic and study the application of science know this to be um, know this to be true. Yeah, and it it does get frustrating when people argue against the scientific method. Um, but it, it it is interesting. Now I'm looking at this story in the Times columnist. I'm sure you've read, um, and it's it's an unusual article in the way it's written. That's all I'll say about it. it. But there 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 is one part in it where it says uh, BC Ministry of Forest Lands and Natural Resource Operations. Uh, provincial wildlife staff have not had the opportunity to review the study in enough detail to comment, but did offer a statement that staff advised that hunting 
uh, does not link to conflict between young cougars and people. High slash robust cougar populations do as young cats search for their own new home slash uh, or homes, ranges, slash territories. The lack of cougars and high prey base in and around urban areas attracts these dispersing young cats, which often leads to conflict. So that is sort of the current chain of thought. But what I find truly fascinating and what I don't understand why the journalist didn't highlight is that it says provincial wildlife staff have not had the opportunity to review the study yeah. and then yeah, offer an right. opinion about the science in the study. Yeah. Yes, yes. No, I... I, I... I picked up on that too. I thought, oh, that's interesting. This is a open access article about which we made um, our ministry contacts um, aware of the, the, actually before it was published that it was to be published and then when it was published. So they, they clearly had that information. Um, but it's easier for them to say, we haven't had time to review this than, than to try to deal with the reality of, of reading it and... Um, commenting on the merits or um, deficits of our approach. I think that's that would have prevented them from giving us the same sort of line that they've given for, for and they and other management agencies have given for, for decades here. And they mentioned something very important, that is, you know, um, robust the cougar population. So, so we accounted for that in our statistical model. So and we haven't talked about it before, but since you brought it up. Um, so another mechanism hypothesis is that we see lots of juveniles dispersing uh, from areas and times in which in which um, productivity is high. There are, There's a lot of plant food that supports a lot of ungulates or, or things like deer and elk, and therefore the cougar population grows, and, and when it grows, it pumps out dispersers, and those dispersers get in trouble around around um, urban areas. So we thought that was important to test that hypothesis, among others, in our model uh, models. And so we... Um, you, we downloaded uh, a data set that's, that wildlife ecologists and others um, use a lot of, and it's uh, it's a productivity metric, and it's basically satellite-derived, basically photographs using certain wavelengths um, of light to give us what turns out to be very accurate predictions, or estimates, rather, of the productivity of the landscape, basically how much biomass the landscape is pumping out, which is usually a function of things like temperature and precipitation. And we can reasonably expect when there's lots of vegetation around, there's lots of deer around, and when there's lots of deer around, there's lots of cougars around. So we accounted for that in our models. We also accounted for human density, because that, of course, is another predictor of human wildlife um, conflict. Basically, we can predict and, and find evidence for um, um, higher levels of conflict in areas where human density is higher. So those two things we accounted for in models and found small effects for, sometimes significant, sometimes not significant. But the important thing is, because it relates to the ministry statement, we accounted for both um, estimates or proxies for cougar population density and human density. And despite doing that and accounting for those relatively modest effects, the largest effect um, 
and significant in at least one of the two sexes across all five areas was the level of hunting in the year of or the year before conflict was measured. So when we tease apart the various contributions of all the potential drivers of conflict, human density, the productivity and density of, of cougar populations, um, and hunting, trophy hunting, we find almost overwhelmingly, certainly, um, uh, certainly the most influential effect of trophy hunting. So the ministry's response, in my view, is it was wholly inadequate was status their status quo narrative that was not at all informed by actually reading the study by their own admission yeah i i i, I just find it funny uh yeah. in a very sad sad way um and now the the follow-up statement to this one um is from a spokesman for the BC Wildlife Federation, mm-hmm. which is a hunting lobby disguised as people who care about wildlife. Right. And okay. I'm reserving opinions, of course. Yeah. Um, and it says there are definitely some challenges with the study's design. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then goes on to have a discussion about tasty cougar meat for some reason, right. because that makes everything okay. But right. this is something that I see constantly. Um, and it, it, it's something that... I find very frustrating because they say, oh, I've got problems with the methodology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's all he says. Yeah. No. Um, I mean, that'd be like someone saying my, in, after reading an essay, I wrote saying, well, your grammar's poor. Right. And walking away. It's well, no, I mean, if I made a mistake, tell me where I made a mistake exactly. and I'll address it. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's pretty much a, a throwaway line and it's probably very satisfying for the person to do something like that because it's, Enough to, you know, stop a few people when they read and go, oh, well, maybe yeah, maybe the design is poor. Maybe this guy's right. Uh, but, you know, anyone who, who would think about this for, you know, just a second or so would go, well, okay, you, I, you know, I'd really need to hear more uh, about what this fella has to say. Um, so it, it was wholly expected, that sort of response. And, and, and interestingly, um, BC Wildlife Federation. So, so they they are a constituency or a, essentially a lobby group for all hunters in British Columbia. And, the, and here's the reality, Mike: that that most hunters in British Columbia don't want to kill carnivores. They don't want to kill things that they're not going to eat. Uh, most people um, have sort of draw a sort of philosophical line in the sand in in BC and elsewhere, and and it's just. Um, what I tend to refer to as fringe hunters are those people, mostly men, overwhelmingly men, that, that want to kill things for gratuitous reasons, for, for um, trophy and sport and, and, and fun. And that, that's, that's the category that's most relevant when we talk about cougar hunting. And, and I think they're increasingly realizing that the rest of society, non-hunters, are saying, you know, some of, most of us can handle some hunting, even though that may not appeal to everyone, and I, and I completely understand and respect that. What we don't want to deal with anymore, which belongs in the past, is, is the hunting of carnivores. So what we see BC Wildlife Federation and the BC Guide Outfitters Association doing now is, is all of a sudden coming up with, you know, cougar roasts and grizzly bear, um, I don't know, meatloaf, whatever, at their banquets and, and, and kind of trying to 
develop um, some social license for killing these animals and saying, we don't kill these for sport, we kill these for these delicious sweet and sour dishes, which has got to be the most absurd thing um, I've ever heard. Um, <laughs> because yeah, To be fair, sweet and sour stuff is pretty good. Yeah. In general, right. yes, tofu. Give me some. That would be that would be. <laughs> but sugar, and then then in his next breath, he's talking about you know when we when we go out cougar hunting, we're thinking of food, and and that is just not supported by um, policy. Even you know for when you kill a cougar in the field, you're not obliged by law to bring any edible portion with you. Same with grizzly bears same with wolves, same with coyotes, because everyone knows damn well that no one eats those. Or, I mean, there's you'll find a nut that will eat anything, uh, or in this case, a handful of nuts. Um, uh, but, but, you know, even policymakers know that these animals are not being slaughtered to um, feed families. They're being killed to feed egos. And, and the way these men feed their egos is to show other men um, bits and pieces of the animals that they killed, and that largely means the head and skin uh, and paws and claws and these sort of things. Um, so to, to hear these this absurd nonsense about you know sweet and sour cougar recipes and roast grizzly bears at, at these annual bank banquets, it's just sort of a, a recent... Uh, and bizarre chapter in this uh, increasingly bizarre uh, defense and narrative that the the very small but vocal fringe group of hunters that kill carnivores like to parade around. But it's it's just nonsense. There are very good reasons why in many cultures around the world, most or all cultures around the world, there's taboos against eating carnivores because they often can harbor the same parasite we can as human beings because we've evolved in eating the same prey types, mostly ungulates. Um, and they taste bad, and that's the, that poor taste is related to um, the perils of eating these things. We tend to find things unpalatable that are potentially dangerous to us. And just from a, a ecological perspective, um, uh, we don't go out trying to hunt low-density, uh, elusive animals to put food on the table. Um, those that choose to hunt and kill things to, to eat, they are most reasonably after animals that are relatively high density, those animals at the base of the food web, the herbivores. So you put this all together, and it's just the most absurd argument uh, I've I've heard in a long, long time that that most cougar hunters are after meat. They're not. They're after trophies. Yeah, well, next time I'm out there, I'll make sure to bring some sweet and sour sauce, and we'll uh, we'll go sit in the woods together and hold hands and enjoy some family time, um, and find some food that way. Uh, maybe yeah, dip some some wild carrots. That's the that's deal, Mike. All right. Now, my final question. Um, my final question, you have been uh, very, very kind in giving us so much time today. I, uh, I do want to just touch on the idea that keeps seeming to come up with, with these issues is this strange cycle between 
The science says it's okay. The tradition says it's okay. It's about food. The science says it's okay. When we are talking about these issues, there is this cyclical argument that comes up, whether it's trapping of carnivores, whether it's uh, uh, hunting of them. At what point do we say the science, like, can we, we definitively say the science does not support what you're saying and like yeah. just hold up a, a holy symbol of science, you know, like a little Darwin outline or something, right. and force that conversation right. to end. Right, right. I think that's important. You know, keeping up the fight uh, in the dimension or the domain of science, because you know, even though managers demonstrate otherwise, um, these are supposed to be evidence-informed management decisions. Um, so we should not. Um, abandon um, the pursuit of evidence-informed management, uh, despite the frustrations that we commonly face, because eventually they come around. But I, I would argue, actually, that that science is 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 takes us second place to arguments and even policy formation that ought to be based not on on science but on ethics and. And I, I say this for a couple of reasons. Number one, I, I think that science can inform decisions, but they, science can never justify a decision. So, uh, and and here's why: the the danger of 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 um, using only science in in management decisions that are provocative, like like trophy hunting, is that um, there may very well be enough cougars or wolves uh, to hunt. Uh, and um, leave so-called sustainable populations to hunt perpetually in the future. And, and that may be important information provided by science um, that can inform management decisions, but they can never justify management decisions. I would argue, and, and, and ethicists and, and people I read and respect a lot, like uh, Michael Nelson at uh, Oregon State University or John Vucetich at uh, Michigan Technical University and, and others like them, um, that we should evaluate some of these um, especially egregious um, uh, killing of wildlife with, a, with an ethical lens and ask, you know, sh- should we ought we kill animals? Um, not to provide some basic human need like food, but only and exclusively to provide for replaceable, um, less important, uh, gratuitous reasons for sport and trophy. And I think the answer is clear. I think the answer is no. We we should not be um, killing these animals and, and causing suffering so that uh, a very small number of men can be very pleased with themselves and, and show them off as trophies. We don't treat one another this way. Human beings generally would almost exclusively agree we shouldn't treat each other um, this way. So why should we treat other animals this way, animals that are, are very capable of feeling um, um, suffering like we can? Um, so I believe that that science is important, but we should be asking um, ethical questions like this. And uh, I'll leave you with this. Um, 
that's essentially what what California did in I believe mid '90s sometime. Um, there are plenty of cougars in California in most areas um, where there still remain after um, you know the rapid development in California in the last few hundred years. Where they still remain, um, they are neither exploding nor um, um, on the edge of um, disappearing. Um, but yet, uh, we no longer have cougar hunting in California. Why? Because uh, there was a referendum and people um, gave thought to how should we be treating these cougars. And they voted not on some sort of... Um, accurate and precise information about how many cats and was this a, uh, this was a sustainability question. It was not. This was a more of an ethical question. How should we be treating these animals? And um, they decided as a whole um, that we ought not to be killing mountain lions in the state, and they haven't since. And um, so it gives me hope that, that, you know, California often leads the world in, in you know, enviro-social sort of, uh, domains, and I hope that that British Columbia and other jurisdictions um, catch up. Uh, actually, in Romania, uh, last month, surprise decision that they have um, now prohibited a formerly very lucrative um, for government and game managers uh, hunt of grizzly bears, lynx, and wolves, which are all shot not for food but for trophy. So. So scanning the horizons of, of California and, and Romania gives me hope that, that BC can, uh, the government managers can, can crawl out from under a very ancient rock and, and maybe do something a little differently with, with our carnivores. To learn more about this particular study, the work Dr. Derriman does as a Kai Raincoast professor at UVic, or any of the organizations he works with, please do follow the links on this week's Defender Radio blog at thefurbears.com. That's it for this week, folks. I want to thank Chris for joining us and spending so much time talking about this study, ecology, and all of the science going on behind the scenes. And I want to thank all of you, because education is where change starts. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.